Bibles, uh, please open them to Galatians chapter 1, and let's stand together in reading of God's Word. Galatians chapter 1, we'll read verses 1 through 10, though our study would just be from verses 1 through 5. This is the Word of God. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him, who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed, as we have said before. So now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of men, of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Please be seated. Well, just, um, just yesterday, someone asked me if I ever get nervous preaching. Uh, if I still get or ever got nervous preaching. And I, I look back upon my preaching career and say, yes, several times I was very nervous preaching. Uh, most nervous I've ever been was when my seminary called me, and I thought they were going to revoke my uh, degree. And uh, they were calling me, asking me if I would speak at their um, chapel. And uh, driving there, my heart was literally in my throat. Because I'm preaching before the students, they don't know anything. They're seminarians, right? But it's the professors. These guys have forgotten more about the Bible than I've ever learned. Whatever text I choose, they have done, you know, a doctoral level study on that text. So I gotta preach about the heart, not about the text, right? Where's your heart? You love Jesus. So going there, I was quite nervous, and I thank God for the big pulpit because I could shake behind it and no one could see it. Another time I was quite nervous is when I went to the border town of China and North Korea with several leaders of our church. We landed and were ministering in Tumon, China, but it's a Korean area, and it's a Korean church. And the pastor asked me to preach Sunday, and we arrived on Saturday. And he told me there'd be no translators, I have to preach in Korean, right? So my Korean is like the second grade, first grade level Korean. He wanted me to preach the Bible in Korean. So my fear was that holy laughter would break out. And it's not because of the Holy Spirit, but because of the other spirit, right? Because of my Korean is so awful that I would just uh, make a fool of myself. So that was my sec- you know, great fear. Well, today, you know, I, I normally don't get nervous preaching at Cornerstone, but today I am nervous. I am uh, trembling. I am afraid. Uh, it is um, because we're handling a very powerful book. Uh, it's... Um, We're handling dynamite, Galatians. It's a bomb. Uh, Saw that movie Hurt Locker. These uh, soldiers in Iraq disarm uh, 
bombs and ammunition and, and they have to have steady hands and nerves of steel and just calm demeanor. Um, that is my uh, posture this morning. Um, I am trembling in my heart because the book that we're endeavoring to study is uh, so powerful. It is uh, like handling dynamite. It is an explosive epistle by the Apostle Paul. The impact that this single letter has made on Christian history, let alone human history, is, uh, is incredible. It cannot be overstated. Bible students have said that it is one of his greatest epistles, the most influential book of the Bible. Um, it is the foundation, the cornerstone of the Reformation. James Montgomery Boyce had said that not many books have made such a lasting impression on men's minds as the epistle to the Galatians, nor have many done so much to shape the history of the Western world. Merrill C. Tenney said, Christianity would have been just another religious sect of Judaism were it not for Galatians. It was the cornerstone of the Reformation. Um, Martin Luther got saved while studying Psalms, Romans, and Galatians. And he got saved particularly in Romans 1.17. But when he read and studied Galatians, for him, that became his way, entrance into the doors of true Christianity. For him, his, um, his shackles, his chains broke off when he understood the message of Galatians. He so loved this book that he said, this epistle is mine. To it I am as in wedlock. I am married to it. It is my Catherine. And who is Catherine? It's his wife. Right. This book is so bonded to it that he considered it his wife. Um, when, whenever this epistle is read, studied, and taught, and believed, incredible things have happened. Incredible things have happened. Um, John Bunyan said that this is his most favorite book. And Luther's teaching, his commentary on Galatians, next to the Bible, is his favorite because it gave him liberty. It gave him Christian freedom. Um, we, many of you know about John Wesley's conversion testimony, how he was a failed missionary. He went to Georgia. His heart was cold. He had, a, he had an awful time ministering, didn't love the people, didn't love Christ. He, he failed, came back to London, and he was walking on the street, went to Aldersgate Church, and when he went there, there was no pastor. So some layman was reading Luther's commentary to Romans. And as he was hearing Luther teach, his heart was warmed. What many don't know is that week before this, John Wesley's brother, Charles Wesley, a writer, an evangelist, Bible teacher, and a hymn writer, uh, he was saved, and he was saved when he was reading with his friends Luther's commentary on Galatians. And in his biography, in, in his journal, he describes, he gives testimony to this experience. Uh, I, I read the preface aloud on May 17, 1738. At the words where Luther said, 
What have we then to do to be saved? Nothing? No, nothing, but only to accept of Him who of God is made unto us our wisdom and righteousness, sanctification and redemption. And there came upon me such a power I cannot well describe. My great burden fell off in an instant. My heart was so filled with peace and love that I burst into tears. I almost thought I saw our Savior. My companions, perceiving me so affected, they fell on their knees and prayed and prayed for me. When I afterwards went out into the street, I could scarcely feel the ground I was walking upon. So whenever this epistle was studied and believed, incredible things would happen. God did mighty things. And therein lies the greater reason for my trembling this morning. I fear that I would miss it. I would fear that due to unbelief, not just myself, but you would miss it. That your heart is so hardened that you are so in love with your life and so you are so corrupted by legalism that you have put God and your Christian life in a box and you've made that your identity and you have resolved in your heart to not give your life over to the Lord. You have resolved in your, li- in your heart to play Christianity to come to church, to say the right things, to go to the motions of worship and listen to God's word and fellowship afterwards. But through it all, in your heart, you are in control and you have put God and Christian life in a box and you will not let go of it. And out of fear of change, of fear of living by faith, and because you're so afraid that you somehow think God is, is an unkind, unjust, unloving God. He's going to give you a stone. He's going to give you a serpent. He's going to give you a scorpion. You don't trust God for your life. You just hold on to, your, to it. That you'll miss out on this truly explosive book. And you'll remain unchanged. You'll remain unchanged. This has happened throughout history of the Christian church. In Hebrews 4, the writer of Hebrews says, um, good news came to us just as to them, but this gospel message was of no benefit to them. Why? Because they did not believe in the message. They did not believe it. As Pastor Dan said, the longest distance in the world is from the head to our hearts. And so these people just intellectually understood the message but they will not believe in the message. They will not trust and receive and hope in the message. So it was of no benefit. So rather Hebrews echoes that warning given in the Old Testament. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Do not harden your hearts. Instead, believe in the message. Take it and eat. Jesus is the bread of life. He is the living water. He will indeed satisfy your hunger, quench your thirst, 
So it is our prayer that as you, as we study, you would not miss it, but you would trust in Christ and his love and goodness and his power to save and sanctify. And you would entrust your soul over to the Lord. And therefore, as the gospel is preached, you would be changed in an instant. So instead of waiting for the end to pray, I want to ask you to bow in prayer right now. And do not mind the people around you. Would you pray for your own heart? That your heart would not be hardened to this amazing book given to us by grace that reveals to us the beauty of our crucified Lord who was risen, ascended into heaven, and is now standing at the right hand of God. Would you ask God, I believe. And would you tell him, help me in my unbelief. Would you ask God to help you in your unbelief so that you might receive the benefits of this message. that we confess that we have sought to rule and reign over our own lives, sought to put you in a box, confine you, and take control of our lives according to our will and not your will. But Lord, we are set free by the gospel, and we, through the cross of Christ, see your holiness, righteousness, and justice, but also at the same time we see and experience your love, grace, your sovereign grace and love to the cross. So Lord, we ask you to help us to believe in your love for us. So much so, God, that it would melt our hearts and cause us, Lord, to trust in your truth, to trust in your scriptures, to hope and abide in the gospel of Christ where we give the reins of our lives over to you and that you will rule and reign through your spirit to transform the inner man all to your glory. God, would you do this? God, would you grant this spiritual renewal? Oh God, would you open our eyes to see our risen Lord and that our hearts be warmed towards him, broken and contrite, and you will be glorified in our lives. Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's go to the text. Galatians chapter 1. This epistle is uh, utterly unique. All the other letters penned by Paul, the 12 letters, were written by a scribe as Paul dictated its contents. Galatians Paul couldn't wait for a scribe. In chapter 6, verse 11, he says, See how large, uh, what, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. He heard of the Christians at Galatia and that false teachers had infiltrated the ranks and they were leading them astray from the gospel of God's grace. They were trying to add to the gospel, corrupt and compromise the gospel by adding to it rules, regulations, commands of Moses. Binding their consciences 
to obey special days and binding their hearts to circumcision. And Paul understood this was not a small thing. They were trying to supplant the gospel of God's grace. If they were obligated to one little point of the law, they are obligated to obey all of it. So he is terrified. His heart is shocked. His heart is broken because these wolves have come in clothed as sheep to ravage the flock. So he cannot wait for a scribe. He begins to write this letter. With passion and intensity and emotion overflowing, he uses his own hands to write the epistle. And after six chapters, his hand is tired. And so he begins to loosen his grip and his letters get larger and larger. And he makes the point, it is because I am writing to you myself. It is a stirring letter written by Paul whose heart was breaking for them, literally breaking for them. And we find ourselves in the first five verses. He begins, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Now we need to uh, pause here and look at the author. Consider uh, the apostle Paul. The word Paul in Greek literally means small or little. I think an apt description of Paul's physical stature. His enemies in 2 Corinthians 10 wrote of Paul and they said his writing is weighty, but his physical uh, stature is unimpressive. A second century author, perhaps reading of, of a description of Paul, wrote this. Uh, describing Paul's physical uh, uh, attributes. He was a man of small stature with a bald head and crooked legs. In a good state of body with eyebrows meeting and nose somewhat hooked. But he was full of friendliness. He appeared like a man, but he had the face of an angel. So Paul was a small man, a bald man, physically unimpressive, eyebrows meeting, but his mind was incredible. His heart was as a lion. His heart and soul was full of the affection of Christ. He was from a Jewish family. He, was, uh, he learned a trade of his family, which is tent making. At an early age, he was sent to Jerusalem to study under Gamaliel. Gamaliel was the grandson of Rabbi Hillel, a popular, well-known rabbi. Gamaliel was a leading teacher of that time. Paul was immersed in Judaism, and he was devoted to it. He was a tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He became a Pharisee, and one of the leading uh, uh, teachers, Pharisees of his time. He was so zealous for Judaism that he was an ardent evangelist for it. He went around uh, spreading the message of Judaism and at the same time sought to stamp out anyone who would compromise or corrupt uh, the Old Testament Judaism. When he heard about Christians, he, as we know, had only one response, one of uh, opposition and hatred. Uh, He was responsible, Paul was responsible for the first martyr in the Christian faith. 
In Acts 8, we find that Stephen was martyred uh, by Jews in Jerusalem. And after Stephen's death, they laid their cloaks at the feet of Saul, who was Hebrew name for Paul. So he was the ringleader. He was the one who, who led this conspiracy to murder Stephen. After seeing the death of this dear Christian for us, Saul was not, his, his thirst for blood was not quenched. He got letters from the leaders to go to Damascus. He had heard that Christians had fled there. Uh, letters of authority to go and persecute Christians there. On the way there, the most amazing thing happened. God intervened. God called him by his Hebrew name, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And in that instant, um, scales fell off his eyes. His heart of stone was replaced with a heart of flesh. Saul saw his sins, and he saw the Savior, and God saved him. At the same time, God called him to the ministry and God made him, Jesus Christ himself, made him an apostle of Christ. This was Paul's favorite designation. You know, throughout his epistles, when he would write in salutation, he would write of himself as a slave, as a servant, as a prisoner for the Lord. But his favorite moniker, his favorite identity, eight out of 12 letters, he began by saying, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And when he used that term, it was a specific way he was using it. Now, apostle, uh, apostolos, uh, it's a general term. It could be used generally. Anyone who is sent, anyone who is sent as a representative, as an envoy, as an ambassador for a person or a group or a country was called an apostle. Right? So ambassadors were called apostles from a certain nation. Right? Apostles are sent by individuals. Epaphroditus in Philippians 2.24 was called, called an apostle of the church at, church at Philippi. When we send missionaries to Czech Republic, you guys are apostles sent by Cornerstone Bible Church. But when Paul used that moniker, he was speaking specifically as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's not like others who are sent by churches. He's not come with the authority given by man. He's coming and planning churches, and writing these letters with the authority of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ appointed 12 apostles. Luke chapter 6, during his time on the earth, Judas disqualified himself. The early church replaced him uh, with Matthias, and the number was complete. But these Jewish apostles didn't know. It was a mystery to them that God had a plan for the Gentiles, that God's heart was not just for the Jewish people, his heart was for Chinese people, right? For, for Irish people, right? for Russians, for Koreans, for New Zealanders, right? Who, who would have thought, Tony, right? That God had a heart for people all over the world. And he needed an apostle for them. So God saved Paul to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And so thus, he identifies himself. And the first two chapters... It contains a lot of biographical information about his salvation and about his calling as an apostle. Uh, he's doing this not because he's insecure. He's not doing this because he's power hungry. Uh, he loves to like have this title and have him call him by, by this title and order people around. He's doing this. It's because these false teachers were 
were accusing him of, of being a false apostle or at the very least of being a sub-apostle to the original 12. They were saying, we have come from Jerusalem, the capital of Christianity. We have come knowing Peter and James. Who is this apostle Paul? He's not even the original 12. Right? And they would uh, malign him. They would criticize him for the purpose of supplying the message of the gospel. They believed that if they could sow doubt in the Galatian church's mind about Paul and his apostolic authority, then they could use that as a wedge to, to undermine the gospel of justification by faith alone and then uh, enslave them again to the law of Moses. So Paul, in the first two chapters of Galatians, is defending his apostolic authority, his identity, his that he was called by Jesus, that he is an apostle, not from man, nor through man, but God and Jesus Christ. He does that because he understands that the gospel is at stake. The message of salvation by faith alone is at stake. That is why he is doing this. So here he begins by identifying himself as Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, through Jesus Christ And then verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, uh, these are not meaningless terms here, grace and peace. They are words that are pregnant with theological truth. In fact, this formula, grace and peace from God and Jesus Christ, summarizes Paul's gospel of salvation. Our The source of our salvation is the grace of God through Jesus Christ. That is the source. It is not through our merit or our works or because we deserve it. It is by grace, unwarranted favor, that we are the standing as Christians. And the first fruit of this grace is peace. Romans 5.1, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We were at once enemies of God. We were at war against God. We were in rebellion against God. But Jesus brought grace and brought near those of us who were far away. He brought us reconciliation. Now we have peace with God. We have peace with ourselves because the burden of sin has been lifted. Our chains have broken off. And we have peace with one another. Because we're not judging each other. We're not envious of each other. We're not comparing each other. Because of works, no, because of grace, we have true peace with fellow Christians. This, this sums up the gospel message. Grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. For Paul, he begins this epistle with grace. And if you go to the end of the epistle, chapter 6, verse 18, you'll find grace be with you. The Christian life is all grace to grace resulting in peace. He mentions from God and the Lord Jesus Christ, and soon as he mentions Jesus Christ, the mere mention causes him to expound on the saving work of that glorious person. Who is the source of grace and peace? Verse 4, Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins 
to deliver us from the present evil age. This is the strongest imaginable description of what Christ did to redeem us. What did he do? He gave himself for our sins. This description is often used in the New Testament. Titus 2.14, who gave himself for us. 1 Timothy 2.6, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Later in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who what? Gave himself for me. Who loved me and gave himself for me. This is what our Lord has done for us. This is how he became our Savior and our Lord. He didn't conquer us with brute force. He didn't buy us with silver and gold. He purchased us with his own precious blood as a metaphor for his life. He gave himself as a sacrifice. He offered himself. He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so he came to pay for our sins. To ransom us with himself. This statement is, a, is the gospel in a nutshell. And that is why he has come. And that is what is being preached to you. He's not come to make demands upon you. He has not come to add more burdens. He has not come, and I'm not preaching here to make you feel more guilty, to shame you more, or to, 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 to wring your hearts with more of the law. Christ has come with this purpose, for this reason, to give himself as a ransom for our sins. I heard the story of a pastor who had heard that a member of his church, a lady, was... Uh, about to be evicted because she was late on her rent payment. So with money in his hand, he went to her, or went to her house and the lights were on and he knocked on her door and no one answered. He knocked again and no one answered again. Every day that week, he went knocking on that door and no one would come to the door. A few weeks later, that lady was crying, came to the church and said, I got evicted out of my house. No one helped me. How come my own church didn't help me? And the pastor said, I went to your house for a whole week knocking on your door because I had money for your rent. And she said, I thought it was a landlord demanding payment. So though I heard that knock, I didn't answer. Christ has come, not demanding payment from us. The gospel is preached to you right now not because God wants anything from you. As if you could give anything to God. That you could give Him any righteousness. Give Him any moral excellence, any duty. Perform anything that will please Him. We are utterly and completely bankrupt spiritually. All our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Right? We are completely destitute of any moral truth in us. We have nothing to offer to God. And Christ, is, Christ came not to add to our burden, but to relieve us from our burden. To give himself for our sins. 
He is not Moses. He is not representing all the religions of this world. He is not Satan accusing us, vexing our hearts with guilt and shame of our sins. No, he has come to be our redeemer, our rescuer, our deliverer, our champion, to set us free, to do something that we cannot do because of our sins. He has come to give his life as a ransom payment for our sins. Now, for our sins, we must make the gospel personal. We must personalize the gospel. Right, this gospel message is not a magical formula where you just say, I believe it, and you are saved, and your sins are forgiven. No, this gospel message, the, the sinner's prayer, you can pray that to your right in your face. You can pray that prayer a thousand times a day, and no one is saved by praying that prayer. You are saved by believing in that prayer. By believing in the gospel. And to believe in the gospel, you must personalize the gospel. And the first thing you must personalize is that you are a sinner. That I am a sinner. That Christ came to give himself for our sins. And you must personalize it for my sins. You must acknowledge that from the top of your head and to the bottom of your feet, that you are filled with nothing but sin that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and God has declared and we know it to be true that we are all sinners and we are slaves to our master and he is sin. That you and I, we are nothing less and nothing more than sinners. Do you believe that? Do you confess that? Do you acknowledge it from your heart? I am a sinner. I cannot make any rights before a holy God. I have no standing to judge anyone else. All I can do is beat my chest and say, Father, forgive me for I'm a sinner. Can you personalize it? If you have, and that's where your insecurity grows. That's when legalism just begins. You know, when you're not a Christian, you're secure, right? You're confident. You're walking with a swagger. You want to see sinners in their confidence? Look at my children, Right? Look at your children. They are so confident. They sin openly and blatantly and repeatedly, and there is no shame. It's amazing. There is no, even a, even a crouton worth of guilt in their hearts after all the sins they have committed. And they are so free of accepting love from mom and dad. And they sin again and again with absolute freedom. Not Christians are secure and confident in their sins. Christians, once we acknowledge our depravity, our sinfulness, what happens? We grow in insecurity. Why? Because we look at our hearts and we see there is no end to our sins. There is no end to our depravity. That our sins are not just sins of commission externally, but they're sins of the heart. Coveting, jealousy, discontentment, anger, malice, hatred, impure thoughts, lofty thoughts of ourselves, judging others, wanting others to worship us. Our sins know no bounds. And therefore, we are insecure. Uh, I read this story, maybe this week or last week, about a, about a lady who was engaged to be married and her fiancé broke off the engagement very abruptly. Why? Because they found out together as they're going through their debts that she had over 170000 
that she owed to st- in student loans. She thought she owed about 100000 She had no idea. She was making minimum payments. And then when she did the math together, he found out she owed, she owed 170, over 170000 And he understands marriage. When you're married, what happens? Right? You join your assets and you join your obligations, your debts. And so he walked away. He, can't, he broke off their engagement and he broke off the wedding and he walked away. That is our fear, right? We understand that if our spouses knew how sinful we were, they would, they would divorce us. Even our parents, if they, they knew and saw the, the, the depths of our depravity, they would abandon us. They would disown us. Even our closest friends, if they saw what we were truly like, they would be our worst enemies. And we apply that to God. And we fear, God sees all my sins. And my sin is no limit. And he's going to be upset, disappointed, angry with me. And he might break off this union. He might cancel this salvation transaction. And he would disown me because my sins are so great. And in our legalism, what is our response? I'm going to start paying off my debt. I'm going to fix my life, get my act together. Right? I'm going to stop eating out. Right? I'm going to st- stop all, all those uh, frivolous uh, expenses and start paying off my debt and work hard at being a better person so that I would be acceptable to God. But in that way, we are going astray from Christ. Strangely, Satan uses these lies to confuse and condemn and lead us away from Jesus. We wrongly think that we must hide our sins from Christ. We must decrease our sins to make us more accepted by Him, acceptable by Him, that we must uh, uh, make ourselves righteous. No. Having this great debt of sin doesn't repel Christ from us. This is why he came. He came for those who are burdened, who are overloaded, overwhelmed with the debt of sin that they have incurred in their hearts. Martin Luther said this in his commentary. He preaches much better than I do, so I'll just read what he said. I have often proved by experience, and I continue to find that every day, how hard it is to believe, especially during conflicts of conscience, that Christ was given not for the holy, righteous, worthy, and those who were his friends, but Christ was given for wicked sinners, for the unworthy, and for his enemies who deserve God's wrath and everlasting death. Let us therefore arm ourselves with these and similar verses of the scriptures. So that when the devil tells us that we are sinners and therefore damned, we may answer him, because you say I'm a sinner, therefore I will be righteous and be saved. The devil will say, no, you will be damned because of your great sins. And I will reply, no, 
For I fly to Christ, who has given himself for my sins. Therefore, Satan, you will not prevail against me when you try to terrify me by telling me how great my sins are and try to reduce me to heaviness, distrust, despair, hatred, contempt, and blasphemy. On the contrary, when you say that I am a sinner, you give me armor and weapons against yourself so that I can cut your throat with your own sword and treat you under my feet, for Christ died for sinners. More we realize the greatness of our debt of sin, more it magnifies the grace of God. That is why we sing that hymn, When Satan Tempts Me to Despair. And tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him standing there. Who made an end to all my sins. Because the sinless Savior died. My sinful is counted free. For God the just is satisfied. To look upon him and pardon me. To look upon him and pardon me. That is what we are to do personalize our sins and see the greatness of our sins against God and before God. And what does that do? It only magnifies God's grace. He has imparted us greater grace. When sin abounds, grace superabounds. And through the gospel we see that this grace, though it is free to us, that it was costly to God. And it was costly to God the Son. God the Father gave His one and only Son for our sins. And Jesus Christ, He gave Himself. How did He give Himself? He experienced hell on Calvary. He was forsaken by the Father. He was abandoned for the one and only time he experienced in his depths of his soul the wrath of God. He drank the cup of God's wrath so that we might drink the sweet cup of the promise. This is what was paid for our sins. Not only that, look at the second part of that verse. Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present age, he he gave himself to deliver us, to rescue us, to pluck us out, to ransom us out from the present evil age. This is talking about our sanctification, our life on the earth. He didn't just save us and just allow us to uh, tread water to fend for ourselves. No, he saved us. And he has delivered us. He has rescued us from this evil world. That's the purpose of his atonement. Hebrews 12.2, he is the author and perfecter of our faith. Philippians 1.6, he began this good work and he will complete it at the day of Christ. Paul rightly says that this world is evil. Greek word age, ion, metaphorically, it's the world. It is this, this world is evil because the ruler, the God of this age is evil, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. 
Romans 1, 18 to 32, the whole structure of this world is anti-God. 1 Corinthians 1, 20, the wisdom of this world is foolishness. Ephesians 2, 2, the children of this world are walking in darkness. They're in enmity with God. Colossians 2, it leads, leads only to death. 1 John 5, 19, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Christ died to save us from our sins, to deliver us from this evil world. We have been plucked out. We have been rescued from this present transitory evil age. If you go to verse 4, this is all according to the will of our God and Father. This was not the Lord acting unilaterally, apart from the Holy Spirit, apart from God the Father. The triune God agreed before the ages of time, and it was the will of the Father to rescue his elect and save them from their sins and deliver them from the evil age. It happened all according to the will of God the Father. This is not according to our will. This is not according to uh, our desire. We did not save ourselves, rescue ourselves. God did it all. And therefore, in verse 5, Paul closes with this great doxology. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. When the Apostle Paul contemplates the gospel, it stimulates him to praise and adore God. As he considered the gospel that has saved him and all Christians, as he considered what God has done in Christ, the costly grace that was given so that we might be delivered from our sins, it caused him to glorify the Father, praise him and exalt him, to extol him forever and ever. All creation glorifies God. But in the cross of Christ, in the death of Jesus Christ, we see the blazing center of the glory of God. We see the height of God's glory. We see in the clearest way possible God's perfect holiness, his righteousness, his justice. We see his response to sin, his indignant wrath being poured out upon sin and Christ bearing the cross and bearing the the burden of our sins. We see him receiving the wrath of God and atoning for all our sins. And through Jesus, we know and experience God's love and God's grace, God's mercy for us. When Paul considered it, his response was one of praise. For our time as we close, I want us to close in like manner, considering the gospel of Christ. We want to remember by grace this holy hour when with fellow believers we heard the gospel message together and we tasted for ourselves saw for ourselves the ugliness of our sins, the bitterness of its taste in our mouths. At the same time, we tasted the sweeter grace that comes through the gospel. 
oh, we are saved and justified not by works, but by faith alone, and therefore we have complete freedom in Christ. Do you believe that truth? Do you trust in that truth for your life, for your sanctification, for eternal glory? May you ponder these truths in your heart and carry this water home and may the cross of Christ be your glory. Right now, be your glory, be your joy, be your satisfaction. May the cross of Christ be your joy and satisfaction throughout this week for the rest of your lives. So much so that just like Paul, you will say that you would boast only in the cross of Christ cross of Jesus Christ would be your only boasting in this world. Father, we come to you and we pray. By your spirit, you grant us to to receive this moment and this truth and taste and experience the sweetness of gospel grace how you sent your son Jesus Christ not as a lawgiver Moses to add to our burden not as a debt collector to demand for us more obedience more sacrifices that you sent your son as a sacrifice on behalf of our sins to be the ransom payment for, for the debt of all our sins And that even as Christians, as we grow in awareness of our sinfulness, Lord, through faith in the gospel, it doesn't hinder our walk with you. It doesn't weaken our relationship. No. By faith, it strengthens our walk with you. Because it makes us that much more dependent upon the cross. And it makes us that much more aware of the height, the depth, the width, the length of the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That you, knowing all our past, present, and future sins, you knew the full extent of our debt, and yet you still loved us. You still died for us. And you have delivered us from this present world. And you are waiting for us to be with you forever. Lord, this this marvel, this uh, weight of glory that we, we, we experience now as a believers to gather together in singing the gospel, praying the gospel, hearing the gospel, hearing Jesus preached. Lord, may we remember this grace. And God, we pray through your spirit, we would carry it home with us. We would carry it home in our private lives, to our workplaces. Lord, to, to our to our friends, to this world, and that this message would be our glory. And through it, we would glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>